I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. There's so many academic skills that can be taught through the process of starting a business. You know, if you have students who really dislike math and they learn that their revenues minus their expenses will be their profits to keep, math comes alive very quickly. With her law degree from Stanford and a new shiny offer from a huge law firm in hand, Suzanne McKechnie-Klar was on her way to the top. But before she arrived, she decided to do one last thing that would change her life forever. She applied for a fellowship to work in East Palo Alto, which was the murder capital of the U.S. at the time, to try to help low-income adults start their own businesses. After feeling like she was failing miserably, four young high school students walked into her office looking for help setting up their own businesses, and she realized she'd finally found the right target market. 20 years later, her organization, Build, helps at-risk high school students learn entrepreneurship. I sat down with Suzanne to talk following your heart, knowing when it's time to step away, and figuring out how to start something even when you have no clue what you're doing. We're going to go all the way to the back, uh, the origin story. And where, what I actually wanted to start with was not necessarily the moment you had the idea, but where you were in your life before you had the idea for Build. Yeah, you know, I think the genesis for Build came very early. My mom was a public school teacher um, when I was a young child, and she taught in a very, what we would call now, underperforming school, it would have been called remedial. And so I had this experience as a young child of going into low-income high schools and meeting young people who weren't able to read. And I think that that inequity stuck with me. But immediately before I started Build, I was actually in law school. And I had always straddled the public sector, private sector fence. And I always felt that the two worlds, particularly when I was in law school in the mid-90s, were so separate, but there was so much we could learn from each other. And so I... Um, I was in my third year of law school, and I had um, accepted an offer to a very large firm in New York City, an international law firm, and doing mergers and acquisitions. But they had a fellowship that you could apply to, to do public interest. And so I was sort of debating, do I just throw in this fellowship application because that's what I really want to do? Or do I follow what the, the sort of standard path was and go to the law firm? Mm. And and just orienting us here, when was this? This was in 1998. I was a third year and the application was due in the fall. And um, I was fortunate enough to be selected for this fellowship and founded Build in 1999. Yeah. Talk us through that. How, how did it come to be? 
Uh, it was a very messy story. I think like many entrepreneurial ventures, sometimes I hear people talk about this perfect linear path and I, I'm so envious. But the original path was working with low-income entrepreneurs of color in a community, um, East Palo Alto, California, which not long before I got there had been the murder capital of the nation with more murders per capita than any other city. And so the juxtaposition between I was at Stanford Law School and there was all this affluence and this tremendous amassment of wealth because the tech bubble was starting compared to this community that had so much potential, but there wasn't a lot of capital um, moving in to the community. And so early on, what I thought I would do with this fellowship was help low-income adult entrepreneurs get access to capital. I was thinking, you know, some debt, but also a little bit of equity. Venture capital was pretty popular and there was no access to that in lower income communities. And so that was the start. And I failed miserably with the adults. It was really, really challenging. And when I was feeling sort of extremely down about the work that I was doing in this fellowship and knowing I would have to report back on it, a group of young people came into my office interested in starting a business and said they wanted to drop out of high school and I told them if they stay in high school, I would help them get this business off the ground. And that was the birth of Build. So, so let's go back to, you know, you, you just mentioned that you failed miserably with these adults. Uh, can you actually walk me through a little bit of the process of how you went out and found them? And what does failing miserably look like? Yeah, I think that what happened was I um, believe that I had the answers. And when I think back, sort of the hubris of that is almost embarrassing. So I was a young white woman working in a community of color, thinking that I could really help the community, but not necessarily listening to what the community had to say and what the needs of the community were. And coming from Stanford, Stanford had often used the com this community as a laboratory to study race and poverty, and then folks would leave very quickly. And so early on, I was working in the community law project, and I basically let it be known that I would help entrepreneurs get businesses launched and help them find funding. And I was not aware of so many of the systemic issues um, that they were grappling with in terms of the issues of race and poverty and the lack of network and access. And so, you know, early on in supporting entrepreneurs, I would, uh, I wanted to help an amazing barbecue um, restaurant tour get his sauce into high end grocery shops. And then was able to sort of get a bunch of financiers together to potentially get him a loan, but it turned out he had never paid taxes on this business. And so that was impossible. Or there was uh, a man ahead of his time who wanted to do sort of a taqueria out of his truck, but he didn't have a driver's license and I hadn't looked into that. And so there were all these pieces that I was unaware of. And then I also, I thought it would be so easy to bridge these two worlds but in actuality, it took a lot more and it took a lot of listening and it took a lot of trying to understand not what I thought the community needed, but what the community actually needed. And so when young people came to me to say, we really want to start a business, we're not interested in say in high school, this is what we're inspired by. At first, it was extremely intimidating because I hadn't had experience working with adolescents but I realized what I had to do was just be quiet and listen to what they wanted and what they needed. And then because of the privilege that I held, be able to become the bridge to help support them so that then they could move into 
this entrepreneurial world that they were most interested in. And on all of this is still under the guise of this fellowship that you got. Yes. Under the guise of the fellowship where I committed to working with adult entrepreneurs and building a <laughs> chamber of commerce in the city and doing all of these um, really extraordinary projects, um, for the most part, none of which came to fruition. <laughs> So you have this big offer at this big law firm, you've got this fellowship, you, it sounds like nothing is going linearly here. What happens with the offer at the law firm? Well, so the second year I continued with the fellowship and then I deferred the offer from a law firm and they were very kind. They allowed me to. And as Build became more um, focused on working with young people as a vehicle to re-engage them through entrepreneurship, attorneys in the firm started volunteering. And I think that they really started appreciating the work that was being done. The law firm was Scadden Arps through the Scadden Fellowship. And I think that it, they became very proud of it. I deferred my offer for quite a few years. And then it became abundantly clear that the path that I was on was very different from the path of a corporate attorney. And they kindly allowed me to sit on the fellowship committee to pick new fellows and become a trustee. But I was no longer expected to join them as a mergers and acquisition attorney, which I think was probably best for both of us. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, so you, you, know, you, you mentioned these young people come into your office and they want to be entrepreneurs you want to help them stay in school. And you said, and then Build was born. So what does that look like? What What is Build? What does Build do? And how did it come about from those young people coming into your office? Yes. So originally it was extremely ad hoc and there would be young people who would come after school and they were interested in a business. I never foisted a business idea upon them. They came in with their own businesses. So one of the businesses was One Hood. This is pre-Mark Zuckerberg and the hoodie, so they were not as popular at the time. And it was One Hood, One Neighborhood, One Hoodie, and they came in with sort of a logo. And I was so impressed with them. So they said, well, this is what we're going to charge. I asked them why. And they said, well, we've asked our friends. It was almost like they had done a focus group already. And again, these are 14 and 15-year-olds. Um, and they had these really great ideas. And I realized these students know their target market much better than I might. And so they, um, in small groups, we would do a bunch of field trips. I was very fortunate that I had friends who worked at different places like the Gap or, you know, in different retail establishments. So for that team, I could get mentors. So it was, um, so it was really I think what one of the kids called it loosey goosey. That's how they felt about the program <laughs> early on, which was not what I was going for. And then, you know, fast forward years later, what we realized was if you really want to target those students who are not necessarily inspired by school, so not skimming the best and the brightest, but taking those who are not just disadvantaged, but also disengaged, you have to be embedded in school. You can't assume they'll come on a Saturday or after school. So the way the program operates now is it's an in-school elective and it's credit bearing. So young people take it during their freshman year as an elective, which not only do they get credit for, but in some states like in California, they get UC credit for. So they start to see themselves as college material. And in this program, they actually start and launch real businesses in teams. And by teaching them how to start these small businesses, we're able to obviously give academic skills, but we're also able to embed some extraordinary life and executive functioning skills in the curriculum. 
I just can't even imagine having this sort of program when I was in high school. I, I don't even think I knew. I, it wouldn't even have crossed my mind that entrepreneurship was a viable option for me. Um, and it wasn't even something that was discussed in schools. It's just so incredible to me that you actually got this embedded in the education system itself. Yes. Yes. I think that um, I had always been entrepreneurial. I think I started my first business, a jewelry business, Bodangles by Suzanne. <laughs> and I had a little newspaper for kids in New York, little apples for young New Yorkers, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I loved making money. And I think the two just sort of melded for me where I realized that um, there's so many academic skills that can be taught through the process of starting a business. You know, if you have students who really dislike math and they learn that their revenues minus their expenses will be their profits to keep, math comes alive very quickly. <laughs> and um, I also think that, you know, with the executive functioning skills that we talk about, build focuses on six, communication, collaboration, problem solving, innovation, self-management, and grit. And those are the skills that employers are looking for. And those are the skills that you can gain in running a business as a teenager. And I think the fact that build is not a simulation, that our young people get to run real businesses is why we're able to attract students who typically are not excited about school. That's incredible. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the traction that you've gained to date? I mean, it sounds like this has been 20 years in the making. Yes. You know, some days I think it feels like, wow, it's amazing. We've grown to all these different places. And sometimes just based on how devastating things are currently with our public education system, it feels like a tremendous drop in the bucket. Um, but I do feel like we were right place, right time, where all of a sudden the zeitgeist in our country moved towards entrepreneurship and small business and the just-in-time economy. And on top of that, I think people started talking about grit and that became very popular and sort of a growth mindset. And I think that what we have found is that the students that we work with already possess tremendous grit. They've been through trauma, many of them, that would bring other young people to their knees. What they don't know how to do is harness that grit to be able to move through difficult situations academically and potentially later professionally. But it, entrepreneurs often wear failure as a badge of honor. And so you can fail and pick yourself back up and fail and pick yourself back up. And it's acceptable and you can do it publicly. And I think that that helps to develop that grit muscle. And so I think that what Build has been instilling in young people is slowly becoming extremely mainstream where in 99, the thought of teaching entrepreneurship as an elective in school was very foreign. And now there's a tremendous amount of affluent parents who would like their kids to take a program like Build to teach them all about not just financial literacy, but entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurial mindset. And so I think that there was quite a bit of luck involved. Um, and I think there's something that we have found, which is that public schools serving underperforming young people are clamoring for, some, uh, for something that's very engaging that will also give them real life skills. And so I think that BUILD solves a nice problem for the schools as we partner with different schools in different regions. So something that strikes me from your story is uh, essentially this element that you were starting an organization and you kind of had no idea what you were doing and you were figuring it out as you were going along while you were also simultaneously training other people on how to do 
to start an organization. Yes, um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so. Um, so from that experience, just, you know, in, in terms of people just getting started or having an idea and, you know, kind of figuring it out as they go along, what kind of wisdom do you have from that experience? You know, I think the nice thing that I have learned from the young people is they are aware that there are huge blind spots in their knowledge because they're not expected to know how to write a business plan or figure out a cost model or calculate their return on investment. And so they are very inquisitive and very open. And I think that as we get older, and I think that I fell prey to this myself, um, we don't know what we don't know and we don't ask a lot of questions for fear of either looking foolish or that people will not take us seriously. And so one of the things that I think has become so abundantly clear to me is the people that are willing to solicit quite a bit of advice to to get mentored, to be very transparent when the answer is, you know, I don't know, um, tend to be more successful. And I think I've seen this from the young people because since they're not expected to know this world, they're very comfortable asking lots of questions. And because of it, I think it moves their businesses along. Uh, more quickly. So I think that'd be one thing. The other piece is sort of this importance of team. And I know that there's this fairy tale very often of the one founder who does everything by themselves. But I think we learned very early at Build that it is easier to be a sole proprietor and young people would love to start a business on themselves by themselves. But the real magic is working with a team with diverse backgrounds and experiences and interests and what you're able to then galvanize with a group of people who are maybe not your friends, maybe not your peers. And I think that that was a lesson um, I wish that I had adopted earlier um, in planning for build because I feel like I wanted alone for longer than I had to versus bringing in great thought partners and team members. And then when I finally did a little bit later on, um, I would I would work with that original founding group over and over and over again. They were just, it was an extraordinary group of people. And I wish I had solicited more people while I was planning to do this versus when I was struggling um, and had to sort of bring people in often because I was in crisis mode. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have to ask, I mean, it sounds like this is incredibly rewarding work and I, this is like choosing a a favorite child, but, uh, what has been one of the best moments on this journey for you? You know, it's interesting. So one of the best moments is a very recent moment where, um, every year we have a gala where we honor an entrepreneur. And so we've honored the founder of Twitter or LinkedIn or Pinterest or Airbnb. And this year we honored, Um, a woman who's become a good friend who founded Stitch Fix, Cat Lake. And so it was this amazing, kick-ass female entrepreneur who we were honoring. And she's also a mom, which is amazing. She's a mom of two as well. And she's done this extraordinary work. But she had also been a mentor with Build in 2010. And I was able to watch her with one of her Build students, um, who is now also sort of an adult in her own right. And there was this incredible full circle for me in the work. And then because it was my last year, I recently stepped down um, as CEO, all of these alumni came back. And when I started Build, I was 26 and I was not that far off from these young people. And now 20 years later, these 
young people are, you know, in their early 30s and they are just out in the world doing amazing things, working at extraordinary companies or serving on school boards or going into, you know, military, teaching, ministry, you name it, and seeing these full-fledged adults come back um, was extremely moving for me because over time you do lose touch with these young people. And so to be in a room and look out of 600 people who've been part of this journey was really a, this is your life, Suzanne McKechnie Clark kind of moment. (laughs) I love it. Um, And then conversely, I have to ask, uh, what, what was one of the most challenging days that you went through and how did you get through it? I mean, I think the majority of the days early on were terribly challenging, (laughs) not a lot of fun. I felt like I could give you a couple of years and then there've been some since. So I'll give you, you know, a few really painful moments. One was early on, we won a large grant, which came with free consulting from a top tier consulting firm, which we never could have afforded. And when they looked, this might've been six years in, when they looked at our longitudinal data, it did not look good. And what we realized was we had been professing that we don't skim and we serve, you know, the hardest to serve students, et cetera. That was true in the first year. But when you looked at our retention of who stayed with us through all four years of high school, they were not the hardest to serve students. And we hadn't had the sophistication or the analytics at that time to look at that, but it was really painful to see, in fact, the young people who were staying with us were the ones who might've been okay anyway. And so at that point we had to change all of our processes and our curriculum and our recruitment and retention. So that would be one. Another would be that um, in 2004, I was pregnant with my first child and I wasn't feeling well and I was feeling decreased fetal movement, but you know, I was in year five of build, things were crazy. We had just scaled to our first expansion site Um, And when my son was born, he was born with a condition that is typically fatal called high drops. Um, And so I was, um, he came early and it was very scary. And he was um, on life support and in a coma at Packard Hospital, which is near us, Stanford Hospital. And I was sort of back and forth sitting vigil by his side. We were told he would pass away. And then trying to do my very best at build and feeling so terribly torn that I was failing at everything I was doing. The miracle of that story is that Alexander is now 14 and this child who we're told would be so special needs and if he did survive would have failure to thrive. It's almost six foot two, accelerated student in ninth grade at a local public school and just an extraordinary young man. But that was, um, that was a devastating period. And I feel like, but for the build family wrapping themselves around me, I don't know that my husband and I would have been able to walk through it. And then oh, there's so many terrible moments. <laughs> one more, one more goodie. Um, I would say that just a couple years ago, we scaled too quickly. And so we launched in New York and immediately after in Los Angeles, which are the two largest school districts in the country. In fact, in New York and Los Angeles, 50% of all the high school dropouts in our nation come from those two districts. And so the amount of fundraising that had to happen to do that 
Plus, with a new administration coming in, there were a lot of crises that philanthropists were moving towards. Um, and so we grew too quickly and we had to make cuts and we had to shrink programming. And it was just devastating after having this amazing, you know, 17-year ride of just growing sustainably. Um, and that was just an excruciating experience because, you know, very often in nonprofits, people come, they forsake a tremendous amount what they give up in the private sector. And then to have to do a round of layoffs in that experience, I think it was, it was pretty soul crushing. Thank you for sharing. I, I have to, I have a couple of follow-up questions here just based on these, um, as someone who is currently 34 weeks pregnant with my first child, of course. Yes, I debated whether I should even share that no, story. No, no, it's, it's, uh, it's life. Um, and that's, that's what I'm curious about is sharing that story is um, one of the questions that I often get is, you know, if you're going through trauma as the leader, as the CEO, do you share that with your team? And how open are you with your team about what you're actually going through? It sounds like you said the build team really rallied around you, but from that experience, how much did you share with your team about what was going on? You know, it's interesting. I was advised by outsiders to not tell anyone what was happening. Don't tell fundraise, don't tell, um, our funders don't tell the team it will freak them out. You know, just let the board know what they need to know. Definitely do not let school partners know. Um, at the time I was also teaching a course at Stanford law school. I was told, don't let the faculty know. And I went against all of that advice and I, um, I let everyone know. I didn't call everyone individually. I have a very close colleague at build, uh, Shireen Ballor. I let her, let everyone know and share and let the board know and let funders know and let students know. And I feel like I was so buoyed and bolstered by that. Uh, meals arrived. We lived in East Palo Alto in this lower income community at the time. Um, and meals arrived at our door and we are not Christian, but there were prayer circles for us in the community and people stepped in um, in all sorts of ways. And even people started to come to the NICU, to the neonatal intensive care unit to sit with me while, you know, reading to Alexander and they would read him stories to give me a break or help me with build projects. And so I feel that, you know, we are never wrong when we lead with our vulnerability and when we share, but, and I think that now that has, you know, it's an entire art and Brene Brown and so many other extraordinary folks are sort of studying this and sharing this, but, I think at the time it was very scary, but I am so glad that I was very open about it because I think that I couldn't have held it all together had I not been. Yes, yeah, it's, it's this crazy paradigm that we're expected to lead within as business leaders that you're like this like masculine paradigm that's you know kind of left over that you have to have the stiff upper lip and not tell anyone what's going on and it's it just. I, I like still can't get my head around it. Um, but thank you for sharing that. Of course. Um, so I am curious for you, you, you mentioned that you've recently, you're transitioning. Uh, how is that going? What are you learning? What are you scared of? What are you excited for, uh, for those who have founded a company and looking to transition kind of, what are you learning from this experience? Yes. Well, I, I think that we never, start succession planning early enough. Mm. So I, and I also think that um, when you ask people about 
these transitions, you, you often get cautionary tales of what not to do. And I interviewed so many people who I respect who have founded companies and stepped away or founded much larger nonprofits um, than mine and stepped away in terms of what to do and what not to do. And I was very fortunate that the successor uh, for me, Ayala Shakur, was internal to build. So we did hire a search firm and we did, you know, a huge national search for my successor. And um, it would have been much harder to bring in someone from the outside because of all of that institutional memory and all of the 20 years of relationships but, um, and as I mentioned, we were in a challenging time as well because we had grown too fast. So it wasn't like a very rosy picture that someone would have walked into. But um, my successor had actually been the inaugural executive director for Build and Build in Boston. And I had worked with her for almost a decade and I had respected her and thought she had done an extraordinary job. And I think that she knew all of my assets as well as my liabilities coming in. And I think that she had so much social capital and credibility because she came from being an executive director that the conversation that she could have with an executive director in New York or DC or, or the Bay area was just really different because she came from that place. And she's just, it's just been wonderful to work with her. And I was very clear that I would sort of serve at the pleasure of, the new CEO, my last day is June 12th, but we've had a long transition period and I will be on the board. Um, but I think it was really important that I let her lead. It was really important that I step back and that um, I always be available uh, to her when she needed things or when she had questions. She's extremely um, competent. And so that was also fortunate. But, you know, but there's very few times where I give unsolicited advice when, um, when it's not asked for. And there are times when I have, and I've been very clear, you know, this is why I want to share this with you. Here's my perspective. But I found that because of that, I think she asked me lots of questions and she comes to me. And I hope that I've been able to be a really strong thought partner for her. But I do wish, I think that ideally I would have done this plan five years ago and I would have miss the last few years at build where perhaps some of the missteps that happened for us were because I was tired, I was burnt out and I was ready um, to sort of take my hands off the wheel. And I did it with a team that probably wasn't ready for me to do that at the time. So from an emotional perspective, how do you know when you're ready to step aside from this it's your first child. Your your company is your first child. You're you're essentially handing the child over. Kind of, how did you know you were ready, and what's helping you to actually hand the baby over, so to speak? Yep, that's a great question. You know, I know other people have said it was like the pull of something else, of their next chapter, or of you know they had another idea that they felt that they had to engage in or start. And I think for me, it was really emotionally when I love build so much and I love the impact and I love the program, I love the people, but it was when I stopped feeling excited about the impact. And so even when we would get great data and great longitudinal data, very unlike what we got early on, and we had an educational PhD, you know, evaluations and all these things, it was great. It was exciting. But I didn't feel that visceral passion about it the way I had. 
And I also felt that the things that I used to love in terms of some of the gatherings or, you know, some of the fundraising opportunities or events, they were not filling my bucket anymore. I was finding them more and more exhausting. And I was also starting to feel like I was missing on the personal side more. And so there, you know, there were things with my family or with parents who are getting older, um, or opportunities with my children where I felt, hmm, I would really, I would really like to be at those things. And for a long time, I was able to balance all of it, but I was exhausted and I was mentally drained and I was physically unhealthy. And so I think that it really, for me, was a decision that, you know, I am not feeling as excited or passionate about this. And there's so much to be excited and passionate about. It's probably time for someone else to take the helm. And what is helping you to let go at this point? Well, I think having a really amazing successor helps, right? I, I can't imagine what it would be like if I was getting calls all the time with complaints and how hard it would be to not step back in. Um, but I think is just, I've always wanted to work for my own obsolescence. And so the thought of if I were to leave Build and Build crumbled, that's not exciting to me. What I think is exciting and what I'd like my legacy to be is that I seeded something and that it continues to grow without me. So I think that that really helps. Um, I also think that um, I am really enjoying other opportunities. I'm, I'm doing some teaching and I'm doing some writing, which I never had time for. And I'm having sort of a different level of conversation with friends that I feel that um, I had let friendships, I had let fade away. I'm, you know, looking at some other opportunities to do a little bit of consulting and do a little bit more thought partnering with folks. And so I feel really energized about the future. And I think that makes it easier to not look back too nostalgically on the past. I'm curious about what is the best piece of leadership advice that you have either gotten or that you give? Wow. Um, there's a, uh, professor at uh, Stanford Business School, Irv Grossbeck, who ran the entrepreneurial studies program. And I used to go and talk to him every couple months about um, build. And he would share with me when I would speak to him, uh, turns of phrase that I was using that he felt did not work well for managers. Things like, I'm going to need you to do this. A manager should never say that. I'm going to need you to do something. It puts the person in a very hard position. Or I'm extremely disappointed in you. A manager should never be disappointed in someone. And I think that the lexicon that I used was a bit parental coming into <laughs> this and learning to be more of an affiliative leader and a servant leader and a peer leader is sort of what helped to really accelerate build and our culture. Um, so you've, you know, helped all these incredible young people on their entrepreneurial journeys. You've been on one yourself. I'm curious, uh, in hindsight, uh, for those who are either considering starting a business or are just about to, or in the beginning steps of it, what are the top two to three pieces of advice that you have for entrepreneurs? I would say this is for social entrepreneurs as well as for-profit entrepreneurs. Before you are certain that you have to start something, check if there's something that is out there that you could join and learn from. So in the nonprofit sector, it is so sexy and so compelling to start your own gig. And I get it. I did it. But there's so many extraordinary organizations that you can be entrepreneurial within without having to start from scratch, right? So that you're competing with yet another nonprofit. 
And then I think in the for-profit sector, you know, really lining up those mentors and advisors and those critical friends who will call BS on you before you start the business, having those people, because it is lonely and it is a struggle. And so really making sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that you can trust who will be honest and authentic with you and that you can be honest and authentic with will help you go farther so much faster. Love it. Um, And our final question that we always ask everyone, what is giving you hope for the future? Well, you know, it might be a cliche, but I feel so fortunate to work with young people. And I work with many young people who others are leaving behind. And when I see their conviction and their power and their beauty and the trajectory that they are on, I feel like we are going to be okay. A huge thanks this week goes out to Suzanne McKechnie-Klar and the whole team over at Build, as well as our incredible production team at StoryPop Media and the entire Conscious Company Media team. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production.